invite you to open God's Word to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. The song that we just sang obviously was inspired by what is described in Revelation chapter 5. So in Revelation chapter 5, there is a a great change in God's way of doing things on earth that is anticipated. Great change. So for centuries, for about 2,000 years... God had been dealing almost exclusively with one family. That's the family of Abraham. And they grew to be millions of people, but it was still primarily the, the family of Abraham. As far as we can tell from reading the Old Testament, there were very few non Jews who were saved under the Old Covenant. The city, uh, the, the nation of Israel, was described in the Old Testament as a wife to Jehovah. And she proved to be an unfaithful wife. Under the Old Covenant, the discipline that was specified for adulterous spouses, whether husband or for wife, was that they should be stoned. So there was no divorce for adultery under the Old Covenant it was, uh, it was death by stoning. And so when Israel, after repeated warnings, after God's graciously disciplining Israel, bringing them back, after all of uh, the effort that the Lord put into uh, helping Israel to remain faithful to him as a wife, <clears throat> she became more and more unfaithful. And so the time came when he divorced Israel. And, um, <clears throat> and he is about to stone her. He's about to stone Israel, represented by the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Question would arise, well, who is going to administer God's kingdom now? We have been led by the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets, who is now going to administer God's kingdom. And uh, so this administration of God's kingdom is represented as a scroll that is in the hand of God, and it's sealed with seven seals. And so the, the proclamation is made, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? And John, the writer of this book, observes in the vision that there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And he begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. And then one of the elders there in heaven says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break its seals. And so Jesus goes forward and takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. He is the one who is worthy to administer God's kingdom. And uh, one of the first items on the docket in the administration of God's kingdom is the, uh, the disciplining of Israel. And so he, be- <clears throat> he begins to open the seals and out are shown what's in store for Israel. First of all, there comes out a white horse. Someone has a bow, and he's coming out conquering and to conquer. And then there comes out a red horse, and he's permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. 
And there comes out a black horse, and he represents famine. He's got a pair of scales in his hands. That's what people do when a time of famine, they measure out their food. And there comes out a a sickly green-colored horse, a pale horse. He's death and followed by Hades. And after after these plagues and wars are revealed, then there is a cry that comes from under the altar when the fifth seal is open, and there are people who have been killed. They've been killed for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. And they're asking... How long until you avenge our blood on those who dwell in the land? And uh, Jesus had predicted that the blood of all the prophets and saints would be uh, held accountable, that Jerusalem would be held accountable for that, and God was going to pour out his wrath (coughs) on the city of Jerusalem. And the cry raises up, how long? How long is it going to be? And they're they're given white robes, and they're told to rest a little longer until the full number of the martyrs should be completed who were to be killed just as they had been. And then there is revealed that there's going to be a, a decreation of the old world, the old world being the world of the covenant with Israel. The, the, the sun is going to become black like sackcloth. The full moon is going to become like blood. The stars of the sky are going to fall to the earth. Like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, every mountain and island going to be removed from its place. All of these are symbolic representations of a massive sea change, we might say. It's a, it's a decreation of, of the old world and a, a creation of a new world. So throughout the book of Revelation, we will see that there is the divorcing of an old wife. She's represented as a harlot. And then there is a new bride that comes down of he- out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There is a destruction of the old city of Jerusalem described as Babylon. And then there is a new Jerusalem that comes down of heaven, comes down out of heaven pre- and, uh, and so on. So there's a, there's a decreation. This scroll that Jesus has opened entails the administration of justice. It entails the, admin- the administration of retributive justice, that is, people get punished. It also contains uh, rewarding justice. The friends of God are rewarded. And uh, so, in chapter 7, we read about these friends of God who get rewarded. One question that would arise in the minds of readers is, uh, is there no hope then for anybody who is from Israel? And uh, We see in the first part of Revelation chapter 7 that there are four angels holding back the four destructive winds, which I think are parallel to the four horses that we read about in chapter 6. They're holding back four winds that are going to destroy the land and uh, do great harm, but they're being held back until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. And so, first of all, there are 144,000 who are sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel. As I said last week, I believe that this is a symbolic number. I don't think that we are to say there are 144,000 and no more from uh, the tribes of Israel who are going to be sealed. But instead, this is a symbolic number. 12 times 12 times 1,000 equals 144,000. So, 12 is a number of great significance throughout the Bible. There are 12 12, uh, tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, uh, 12 times 12, and then uh, 
multiplied by 1,000, which is a number of completion, and you come up with uh, the full number. Every, everybody from the people of Israel who is the elect of God is going to be brought safely into the kingdom of God. I also pointed out to you last week that Israel, the, the phrase Israel, is a symbolic term that refers to all of God's people, whether they are physical Jews or not. So I read to you from uh, Galatians chapter 5 that says, if you are of faith, then you belong to Father Abraham and your heirs according to the promise. And then it says later in, in Galatians 3 that uh, those who are Christ's belong to Israel and are heirs according to the promise. And so you are... You may not have a drop of Jewish blood in your veins, but you are part of spiritual Israel if you believe in Jesus Christ and if you have faith in Jesus Christ. The promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And seed in the Greek is not plural. It can be singular or plural in English, but in the Greek it's obvious. It's made to a single seed. And that single seed was Jesus Christ. And so those of us who are united to Jesus Christ are the seed, part of the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the the promise of salvation by faith which God made to Abraham. Now I told you last week that I think that the the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel is a symbolic number for all of the elect. But the passage of Scripture that we're going to get in today makes it very clear that it's not just ethnic Israel that is going to be there. And so the passage of Scripture that I'll be studying today, I think, is a glimpse into heaven. And there are two things that we see as we make this glimpse into heaven. The first one is we see who is going to be there, who is going to be in heaven, and then secondly, what are they doing? So, who is going to be in heaven? And then the second thing that we see here is what goes on in heaven? What are we going to be doing in heaven? And so, uh, I, I confess that I don't think that throughout my Christian life I have been sufficiently allured by the prospect of heaven. Um, I'm, there are probably some non-sinful reasons for that. A non-sinful reason, I think, would be because I have enjoyed good health uh, have enjoyed friends, always had plenty of food, and uh, have never been severely beaten for the, the cause of Christ. The Apostle Paul could say, if, if only in this life we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. I can understand that. Paul, he's shipwrecked, getting beaten all the time, and starving, and people are mistreating him. And uh, so I don't think that you should feel ashamed of the fact, I don't think I should feel ashamed of the fact that our life has been really blessed. And I think that's, that's a non-sinful reason that we are not motivated by misery to look for heaven. But I do think it's sinful in me, and perhaps sinful in you as well, that we don't have more motivation for the, the good things that are waiting for us in heaven. And uh, part of that is... Because we just don't know that much about what's going to be there. Honestly, there's not that much description of it in the Bible. Much of what we believe heaven is going to be is an inference from the things that God says are valuable here on earth, 
we assume that they will be brought to their, uh, brought to their acme, brought to their, their point of ultimate enjoyment in heaven. But there's a lot of inference. This is a very valuable passage of Scripture that we're about to study here. It tells us who's going to be there and what sort of things are going to be happening there. Some of us have very vague, very unscriptural ideas of heaven. Uh, you know, sitting around on a cloud, strumming a harp. We, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people who get more of their idea of heaven from Looney Tunes than they do from the Bible uh, as to what heaven is going to be like. And then there are some other things that I think are figurative descriptions that we have taken literally. And honestly, it just doesn't appeal that much to some of us. So, for example, I I don't think, wow, it would be great to live in a city that has streets that are made of pure gold. I mean, it it would be kind of like the way it is when you visit the Rocky Mountains and you're out there for two weeks. The first two or three days that you walk out of your tent, you look around and it's like, I can't believe how great this is. It's just breathtaking. But after two weeks, it kind of wears off a little bit. I mean, it's still gorgeous. I want to go back. Still, still wonderful, but it's not that first punch of amazement. So I think, yeah, if you see a, a city that, whose walls are made of jasper and whose gates are made of a single pearl and whose streets are made of gold, that's a pretty big punch. But as I understand it in the way that I am now, I just think, I don't know that after I've been there for 10,000 years, I'm going to step out in the morning and say, wow, that's really beautiful. It could be that we are going to be refined so that we're able to enjoy things like that more continuously. But I think it's more likely that those are descriptions that, are, that have spiritual significance. So that the idea that the streets of the city are paved with gold is to say the most valuable thing on earth is of relatively small value compared to the great riches uh, that we enjoy. Not, not physical things, uh, that, you know, that the, and so on with the various physical descriptions. But if all we think about is streets of gold and gates of pearl and walls made of jasper, then I can see how that after a while you think, that just doesn't appeal to me that much. You know, when it says that we're all going to be given crowns, We're going to have just a big stack of crowns stacked up on our head. Does that appeal to you? Walk around with, you know, 10 or 12 crowns stacked up high on your head? How much more meaningful is it for you to think these are rewards that the Lord gives? And it's represented by what would happen on earth when someone had conquered, when someone was being honored, that they are given a a sign that shows this person is being honored. And uh, so, when it says that the, the, they fall down before the Lamb and they cast their crowns before Him, if you have just been thinking, we're all going to take metal rings off of our head and throw them at Jesus, I can see how that, that just really does not appeal that much to you. But there, I think that, what does that symbolize? That we are, a, we're, these rewards and honors that the Lord has given to us, that we just say gladly, I wouldn't have any of it if it weren't for you. I'm so glad to give you all the glory for all of this. And I'm happy to wear this crown. 
Uh, and what it symbolizes, I'm happy to enjoy it, but I, I just want to be perfectly clear from the outset and every day that you are the one who deserves all of the glory and all of the honor. So thank you for sharing it with me. And uh, so I think that, uh, you know, when the Bible reveals spiritual benefits, hopefully it will allure us and say, yeah, I really would like to live in a place like that. I really would like to live around people like that. I'd like to have that kind of fellowship. I'd like to be in that kind of society. Of course, it can also have a, an effect on you that you, you might say, you know, that just doesn't appeal to me. Uh, what, what it's described here does not appeal to me, in which case there needs to be some character improvement. It may need to start from the ground up. It may need to start from your being born again so that you have a taste for things like this. But it could be that we're just not thinking enough about these and being, being allured by the rewards that are described here in heaven. So <clears throat> I'll not read the entire passage. Instead, we'll just take it a bit at a time. But we start in Revelation chapter 7 and beginning with verse 9. Who's going to be there? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now that's the first thing to see. There will be a lot of people there. So many that you can't number them. Now, he comes up with some pretty big numbers, some things that can be numbered. So, like in chapter 9, he says he hears the number of the mounted troops in verse 18. He says the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. So uh, I'm tempted to ask some of our mathematicians to do the math on that right quick. They probably can. It's 200 million. I did it ahead of time. I can't do it that fast. I can't do it that fast in my head. But twice 10,000 times 10,000 is 200 million. That's a lot. Well, he can he can count up to 200 million. But he says, I see a multitude in heaven that no one can number. No one can count it. It's just so so many people. Um, now, there are some of us who don't really like big crowds, understand that. But I think that some of the reasons that you don't like big crowds are not good reasons. Uh, certainly so for me. Uh, you know, that there, I, I can identify some reasons that I don't, really, I don't really have any great desire to go to Thunder over Louisville or to go to the Kentucky Derby or something like that where there are going to be 100,000 people or several hundred thousand people all crowding, crowding up together. Uh, but imagine if this, this was all people that you liked, and this was all people that liked you. I suppose uh, the, the, the immediate illustration that comes is, isn't it great when you come into Bullet Lick Baptist Church and the place is almost full? I mean, a lot better than when there are only 15 or 20 people here. And, you know, if, if there are just two or three here, Jesus is here, and thank God... But I'm telling you, it's a whole lot easier to preach to a full house than it is to three or four people scattered. And I've, I've preached to two or three people in my life. When I was pastor in West Virginia, there were times when my daughter and I would sit out on, the, on those uh, green all-weather carpeted steps at five till seven. And nobody was there yet. And it was kind of disheartening, you know. I've prepared to preach and I wasn't expecting 50 or 60 people to come, but I did think that 10 or 12 people would come at least. 
And uh, to sit there and nobody shows up, that's kind of rough. People always came. Uh, people always came. One, one night there were just, uh, you know, maybe six or eight people, an unusually small crowd. And a farmer who was there said to me, he said, now preacher, if I go out to feed my cattle and only six of them show up, I don't give them the whole load of feed. But how much, how, how much more exciting it is, is it when Bullet Lick is all full and everybody's singing? You know, you get 150, 160, 170 people singing. Wow, it sounds great. I, I grew up in a church that was a little smaller than Bullet Lick, and several times a year my dad would take us to Bible conferences, and we'd go to uh, Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, and there would be four or 500 people there, and They'd start singing to God be the glory. And man, it was like standing beside the road of the Ironton Memorial Day Parade when the bass drums go by. You felt it in your chest. And it was like, oh, this is great. That's just five or six hundred people. Some of you perhaps have been to gatherings where there were ten or twelve thousand people. Some of you maybe went to Together for the gospel a couple of weeks ago, 12,000 people. What's, what's it like to hear 12,000 voices joining in and singing? Maybe some of you re- went to some of those events of promise keepers where there were tens of thousands who would fill up a stadium. And what was like to hear 75, 80,000 men singing old hymns? Well, just imagine if it's a number that no one can number. going to be a big crowd in heaven. And they're going to be from a lot of different places and a lot of different people groups. There's a lot of talk about diversity these days, and a lot of it is, uh, is motivated by bad and ends up in bad. But uh, heaven is going to be a diverse place. Look at what it says there in verse 9. It's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So all, all tribes, all peoples and languages, there are going to be people there. Uh, by the way, some people use this, uh, C.H. Spurgeon being one of them, use this as evidence that babies go to heaven. The way that he the way that he reasons this is that he says there are languages that were spoken a thousand years ago that are no longer spoken. Uh, you know, that happening a lot to the Native American languages and so on. Well, what about languages that went out of existence before the gospel ever came to that people group? And Spurgeon says, well, if there are going to be representatives from that people group who are going to be in heaven, then it must be because infants were saved. Because the Bible doesn't allow that adults who have never heard the gospel and die unbelieving doesn't allow that they will go to heaven. And they're not going to be sent to hell because they didn't obey the gospel. They're going to be sent to hell because they sinned according to the light of their own conscience. You can read about that in, in Romans chapter 2. And uh, my, my position on the salvation of infants is one of optimistic ignorance. 
I'm very optimistic about it, but I don't think the Bible has one word to say about it. But, you know, C.H. Spurgeon, he's not a lightweight. This is one of the arguments that he brings forward to say that infants will be saved. The only way that every tribe and nation and language and people group will be represented in heaven is if infants are saved. But there's going to be a, a great a, a great diversity that is going to be represented there, but the emphasis is not on, hey, we're white people from America, so we're going to celebrate the 4th of July every year. Or, hey, we're African Americans, and so we're going to celebrate Kwanzaa every year. Or, you know, we, we grew up in a country that celebrates... The emphasis is not going to be on diversity. The, infants, the emphasis is going to be on the unity and look at what we are unified about. So there's going to be a great multitude. It's going to be a diverse multitude. But at the end of verse 9, it says, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. White robes are symbolic of innocence. White robes represent the fact that a judicial decision has been reached, and it's good for these people. This reminds me of those uh, celebrations that take place after a football team has won the Super Bowl or won the NCAA championship, or after a basketball team has won the NCAA championship. They immediately start putting on shirts that say, NCAA champions. They immediately start putting on hats that say NCAA champions. Well, those things were printed up ahead of time. They didn't print them those in the last 30 seconds of the game. Uh, the other teams got some in, in boxes somewhere that probably are in goodwill. But uh, the team that won, they've got them ready. We're champions. And that's what these white robes symbolize. They symbolize These people have come to heaven, and their eternal destiny is not in question. They're clothed in white robes. They have been declared innocent. Now, that's pretty alluring, isn't it? Maybe the big crowd never appealed to you. Maybe the singing never appealed to you. But if you have ever worried about your standing before God, the prospect of going to a place where you're given a white robe when you walk through the door, that's pretty nice. And then also, they have palm branches. Now, I don't, again, I don't think that literally you've got uncounted trillions of people standing there and everybody's got a palm branch in their hand. This is what people would do in the first century when there was a great victory. They would take fronds off of palm branches. They did this when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. They would take fronds off of palm trees and then they would wave them. They just festive a festive celebration all this movement and all this happiness we won we are conquerors and that's the kind of crowd that is here Uh, it is a crowd that is clothed in white robes and they are waving palm branches and verse 10 says that they're crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb Now, obviously, God did not need to be saved. Instead, they are saying, salvation that he has given to us has come from him. Nobody looks around and says, hey, how'd you get here? And the guy next to him says, well, you know, I was just a little bit more sensitive than people who lived in 
my family and my neighborhood, and I, uh, I exercised my free will and got here. Turn to the left, say, how, how did you get here? Well, you know, uh, I, just, I, I just always was a sensitive boy. And uh, I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to go to heaven. And so I, I prayed the prayer. I had sense enough to make the right decision for Jesus. And here I am. Now, if there's any of that sort of thing that would go on, how did you get here? I'm here because of God. <laughs> What about you? How'd you get here? I'm here because of God. I'm here because of God. I'm here because of God. And a chant stops up. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. That's one of the ways that you can tell the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel. A true gospel gives all the glory to God and de-emphasizes any credit that goes to man. And a false gospel gives most of the credit to man. Gives most of the credit to man. And uh, so all of the people in heaven, there's no question in their mind, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Now, the next group that is mentioned is angels, but let's skip down to verse 13. I'll come back to angels and let's see, still answering the question, who, who are these? Uh, who's there? Great multitude, diverse multitude. They are an innocent, jubilant multitude, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands. They are an exuberant multitude, crying out with a loud voice. They are a praising multitude. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And now here's a little point of clarification. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? John very wisely says, I said to him, Sir, you know. He doesn't venture an answer. Possible that he doesn't know. It's possible that much of the book of Revelation was somewhat puzzling to him, even as he saw it unfold. There are many times when after... Carefully considering a passage in the book of Revelation, if someone were to ask me, what does all that mean? I'd have to say, sir, you know. (laughs) I don't know either. (laughs) If the Lord were to say to me, you know what that means? Sir, you know. I'm not sure. So the elder doesn't keep him in suspense. He says to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, when we read that they're coming out of the great tribulation, that's not some kind of future event that has not yet happened. Jesus said when he was on his way to the cross that there was going to come great tribulation, such as the world had never seen and never would be, and that it was going to happen during the lifetime of people who were standing there. And so the, the, the great tribulation, according to the Bible is the kind of tribulation that happened with the administration of God's justice commencing with the destruction of Jerusalem, but it has continued through the years. And so, when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, we saw the souls of those who had had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. They're under the altar, and they say, Lord, how long... O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. 
The Lord says, just wait a little while longer. Here's a white robe. Here they are. Here's the white robed multitude. This is the exoneration of those who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. And I think it's not just those who came out in 70 A.D. of that great tribulation, but those throughout history who have been slain. There are still people around the world who are suffering and being killed for the sake of Jesus. And I think they belong in this white-robed multitude, saved out of the great tribulation. And, uh, well, what about, what about you? What about me? Well, I said in, in the introduction to this sermon, one of the reasons that heaven is not more appealing to us is because we have such nice food and nice clothes and nice houses and drive nice cars and nice jobs and And it's not misery that's driving us to look for heaven. Are you also among this group? I think so. Because notice what it says next. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of course, that tells you that this is symbolic language. Because when you wash your robes in blood, they don't come out white. They come out red. So the symbolism here is that the blood of Jesus represents what he has done for the salvation of sinners. And when you believe in Jesus and when you repent of your sins, your sins are washed away by what Jesus has done. That's symbolized in baptism. Baptism doesn't wash your sins away, but it does symbolize. I'm not sure if I said that right. Baptism does not wash your sins away. If I never said it that way, that's what I meant to say. Baptism does not wash your sins away, but baptism symbolizes what washes your sins away. It symbolizes the the blood of the Lord Jesus. It symbolizes what he has done to make the salvation of sinners, sinners whole. I think that we should talk about and sing about the blood of Jesus, but I think that there's a danger that certainly I have succumbed to, and that is that I can sing about the blood of Jesus or argue about the efficiency of the blood of Jesus and lose sight of the fact that it's blood. Lose sight of the fact that we're talking about someone that allegedly we love, at least someone that we admire very greatly, who was really brutally slain, who was beaten so that his back bled, who had a crown of thorns pressed into his brow, who had nails driven through his hands and driven through his feet. And, of course, when something like that happens, then blood flows down. And uh, I, I don't want to be crass about it and uh, just go into all the details about flies and all the sort of thing that would happen if the weather was right. But... Uh, I, don't, I also don't want us to be flippant about it. Uh, you know, growing up, there was a song that we would sing, There is Power in the Blood. That's a good song. But I've been at youth gatherings where the, the leader would say, all right, let's see, who can say power the most times in this course? There is power, 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 power in the blood. You're kind of losing sight of the fact here that we're talking about blood. We're talking about the blood of Jesus, and, uh, and we shouldn't. There are many good songs about the blood of Jesus. We've got to guard our hearts that we're not flippant when we sing them. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw that stream by flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. In evil lo- That's from William Cooper, and now from William Cooper's friend, John Newton. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. He seemed to charge me with his death, though not one word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and drove me to despair. I knew my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but all my tears were vain. Where can my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave that said, I freely all forgive. This blood was for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayst live. What a great crime it is to trample the blood of the covenant underfoot like it's an unholy thing. To treat it like it's just a casual thing, a flippant thing. Instead, we ought to We ought to say, wash me in the blood of the Lamb, and I will be whiter than snow. It is a a multitude that is giving all the glory for their salvation, for their white robes that they wear to the blood of the Lamb. It's not just the redeemed who are there. There are also angels who are there, and that's the part that I skipped over in verse 11, where it says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. God is the source of all blessing. He deserves to receive the credit for all of our blessedness. God is the source of all glory. Have we been made glorious? Yes, we have. He gets all the credit. Were we wise enough to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb? Well, that wisdom came from God. We give Him thanks. We give Him honor. The administration of God's kingdom requires great power. 
You deserve to have it. We're glad that you've got it. Anything that we can contribute to it, we're glad to pitch in. But all power and might belong to you forever and ever. Amen. But now let's spend the last few minutes answering the question, what's going on there? So who is there? Now what's going on there? And it says in verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. I think that the throne of God, especially in the book of Revelation, does not refer merely to His power. I think it refers to His, his capacity as a judge. And so they... We will be before the throne of God and be there happily. Not not in craven terror and fear, but be there happily before the throne of God. And what are we going to do in heaven? Are we just going to sit around and sing all the time? Sit around and hear sermons from various preachers? No, that sounds really boring to me, to just do that all the time. And I might be changed so that that's different. But now this has an appeal. Serve him day and night in his temple. It's not an idle eternity. You're going to have things to do. The Lord represents uh, people who use their gifts well as receiving responsibilities. And when when you're really good at something, you usually enjoy doing it. The Lord gives you gifts, and gives you the opportunity to exercise those gifts and serve Him day and night in His temple. What else happens there? So, we're before the the judgment throne without fear. We have enjoyable employment to keep us happily busy. And we're going to be sheltered from unpleasant, vexing, worrisome things. Look at how it's represented here. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. No one is going to bring an accusation against you. No one's going to be able to come up to you and say, Hey, how, how'd you get here? You sure you did it right? You know, when I was, always, when I was about to graduate from some institution, there was always this fear of, the dean or somebody is going to contact me and say, we overlooked the fact that you didn't do this class. And I was just always a, a real breath of relief once I got the diploma. And because uh, I'm not going to give it back. And uh, nobody's going to come up. A friend of mine sent me something recently. It was uh, Maybe you saw it was Alistair Begg who was saying that the the thief on the cross shows, shows up in heaven and someone says, hey, uh, how, how'd you get here? Because, I mean, just a few minutes ago, you were saying bad things about Jesus and do, have you been baptized? And God, well, no, I haven't been baptized. What do you know about sanctification? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Have, have you... Have you ever read the Bible? No. What are you doing here? He says, well, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. (laughs) And that's really it. With all of our 
theological sophistication, whatever we have, really it comes down to why are you saved? The first words out of your mouth need to be because Jesus. Not because I, because Jesus. He's going to shelter us with his presence. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And you'll be done with things like hunger and thirst, scorching heat. Uh, we, may, we may eat physical food in heaven. We may drink physical drink in heaven. Uh, there's not going to be the sun there. The light of the Lord is going to enlighten the place. But it's, all of the vexations of earth are going to be over. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. I like that. It it indicates that there's going to be some degree of nearness to Jesus. It's not just the king who sits on the throne. Well, the lamb will be their king. He'll be their shepherd. And when you think of shepherd, you think of a manageable flock. You, You know the shepherd. If you're a sheep, you know the shepherd. This is not a ranch with thousands and thousands of sheep. That's not the picture. The idea is... There's going to be a degree of familiarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last thing that is mentioned here, after it says he will guide them to springs of living water, is God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And just let me go topical on you here for just a few minutes and to say what kind of tears are going to be wiped away. First of all, I think there will be uh, tears of fear that will be wiped away. Tears of fear, fear that you're not going to make it to heaven. Those tears are going to be wiped away. I think that tears of regret are going to be wiped away. I don't think that you're going to spend time in heaven saying, oh, I wish I'd done things different. I think those tears are going to be wiped away. I think tears of worry are going to be wiped away. Some people wonder, how could I possibly be happy in heaven when I know that some of my loved ones are in hell. I can't fully explain that, but I think that the tears of worry are going to be wiped away. And I believe that tears of sorrow are going to be wiped away. So that uh, the, the pain that we feel over departed loved ones, in the case of those who have not, not made it to heaven, who are in hell, that those tears of worry will be wept away, we wiped away, and then as far as our loved ones who are in heaven, well, then those tears are wiped away because we're with them. We're enjoying God together. We're enjoying one another together. Now, does all that appeal to you? And there's probably nobody in here who can say, oh, man, I can't wait. I just can't wait. Really, honestly, truly, I just can't wait. Probably all of us can stand some improvement in thinking about heaven, thinking about what's there, in cultivating the kind of character that will be happy when we go to this place. And so when I pray through the model prayer, one of the petitions is, Thy kingdom come. And there are three ways that I think about praying that. First of all, may the kingdom of grace be advanced. And I pray for lost people, especially lost people in my family. Pray that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. I pray that the kingdom of Satan may be destroyed. pray that God will protect me from the influence of Satan, protect our church from the influence of Satan. 
And then I pray that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. And then I always add, and make me ready to live there happily. Make me ready to live there. The, the sad fact is, if you have not been born again, you would not be happy in heaven. You'll be miserable in hell, but you wouldn't be happy in heaven. This sort of thing has no real tug on you, no real visceral pull on you. To be with multitudes of godly people who are worshiping God, and you don't even know what they're talking about, really. May the Lord use this to show you you're not ready to go to heaven. In order to be ready to go to heaven, you've got to wash You've got to wash your life in the blood of the Lamb. And that's just symbolic language that says you've got to receive Jesus. You've got to trust in Him. Stop trying to do it yourself. In heaven, you're not going to say, I got here because I was smart. Are you ready to say, I want to give all the glory to Jesus Christ? Then receive Him. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Whoever's leading us in the concluding hymn, please uh, come and do so.